So, so I'd like to say a good evening to everyone. Uh, I hope everyone is doing well. I am honored and privileged to be able to participate in this group. I used to go to Young Urban Zen, uh, if you pardon the term, religiously, uh, back a couple of years. Uh, and it's had a very big impact on me and I appreciate that. And I'm very happy to be uh, asked to speak. And likewise, I'm very glad to see that the group is going strong. So I'd like to talk to today about the vows that we take within uh, Zen, Soto Zen Buddhism. Nothing too heavy, uh, just as an example um, of the vows or commitments that we make. Uh, I wear a rakasu which is the short robe version of the big robe. Originally, when I did my Jukai, that is to say my first step toward becoming a priest or actually my formal vows in Buddhism, I made a commitment to live by, well, I guess, strive for the potential of just being a better person and a better Buddhist. So just to to bring up what we're gonna be talking about today. We're gonna to be talking today about the four bodhisattva vows. And they are as follows. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are vast and boundless. I vow to enter them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. So what are vows? What are these statements that we make, uh, these, these uh, commitments, these promises, what are they? And when you really think about it, we all have these variations of these vows. Uh, we all make these commitments and promises uh, to ourselves and to our greater community. Uh, don't believe me? An example is uh, traffic laws. We drive. We do not go over the double line on the freeway. We do not drive up on the sidewalk. We try not to go over the speed limit, but you know, sometimes we really, really need to get there and sometimes you just gotta go. And likewise, there are also uh, other commitments and promises that we make in the forms of uh, courtesies and customs. You know, um, I, the big one right now um, is, you know, it used to be shaking hands and now we, our new custom is to avoid that kind of contact. It's a promise that we made toward the well-being of one another. And it's just, we, we have these standards and we try to see how we meet them, how we approach them and what they mean to us. And I wanna to speak to you about my experience with the four vows. When I first started practicing, um, I took a I took the four vows kind of like with a little bit little bit of gusto. It was something that we always said uh, either uh, before a chant uh, or a dharma talk or after a meditation. And in my mind's eye, I heard it echoing and booming, kind of like, well, you know, for for me it would be like the green lantern saying, you know, I vow to defend all beings, and by my lantern's light all evil will fear my might or what have you, or, you know, for my nieces and nephews, it was the uh, Power Rangers. And that was the big to do. I always thought that this was something that I was doing 
for the greater good, for the greater community, and that it was bigger and beyond me. But then I started thinking about just what these words mean, like beings are numberless. How am I about to save them? How do you save every being? How many beings are there? Just in your day-to-day -day life, how many people do you interact with? And when we talk about beings, do we also mean the animals, the plants, our environment? What about the beings we don't see? The people who sacrificed a lot for us to be here. How do we hold a commitment to them? And in that scope, it's overwhelming. But if you break it down though, if you just take it step by step, piece by piece, suddenly it can be a little bit more manageable. Like one thing I realized through my practice was that I am one of those sentient beings that I vowed to save. And in order for me to save them, I have to take care of myself. So beings are numberless, I vow to save them, includes me watching my diet, watching my temperament, seeing how good I am to myself, self-care. But these vows are an invitation to go beyond a self-indulgent um, definition of that self-care. It's an invitation to probe in a little deeper. So now that we realize that we are among those infinite beings that will be saved, we go on to delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. And for me, again, this sounded impossible until I took that step back and looked and saw, wait a minute, delusions. Encountering those things that I see as unreal and then encountering those things that I see as real, but why? What story did I tell myself about myself? What story do you tell yourself about yourself? What do you say to, your, to you in the morning when you get up? What do I say to myself when I look in the mirror? Things have always been this way and this is the way things will always be. But is that true? I am just solely the product of my environment. But what about this? Or how about that? And in confronting these delusions, what we're doing is building that relationship between my and self. Instead of myself, it becomes my and myself. That which is experiencing gets to observe. That which is experience gets to observe. You get to go in a little bit deeper. And as you progressively learn more and more things about yourself, as you accept more about you and the world you're in, you eventually come to the realization that there is a possibility of these beliefs that you hold to be self-evident to be in themselves turning into delusions. So that examination occurs again and again. And now we reach um, our Dharma gates. That's a wonderful and fancy term, isn't it? Dharma gate. Yeah, for the sci-fi fans, fans out there, it almost sounds like you're going through a portal transporting yourself into some vast and different world, a place of magic and 
and high-tech fantasy, or it's everyday events. When we go from delusions are inexhaustible and I'm about to end them, when we examine, we can see that these everyday opportunities, these everyday situations, these are our teachers, our lessons, our opportunity to open and enter a new world each and every time. It's an opportunity to use mindfulness and what we call in the Buddhist practice of the Eightfold Path, right action, skillful means to interact with that world. To say, I'm an angry and impatient man. I am not good to work with until I've had my first cup of coffee. Well then, here's a wonderful opportunity to step through that gate of impatience, that gate of crabbiness, and see what's going on there. For me, it's the realization that I really need to get more sleep. <laughs> Followed by, you know, maybe a self-care routine in the morning so that I'm not exactly just running to get that first cup of coffee each and every time I'm at work or at school. Or maybe getting a cup of coffee for that friend or coworker who has to put up with my crabbiness. It's embodying this practice at each and every moment. That's what entering these Dharma gates are. But it can't seem overwhelming to be immersed in this never-ending uh, cycle of realization, learning, and adapting. Well, that's the difference between mastery and mastering. Mastery is the idea that once I get to a certain position, then I know no longer need to learn it, and I have achieved, and I can do nothing. Mastering is practicing every day, whatever that skill is. Uh, poetry, music, dance. To be a master is to know it. To be mastering it is to keep knowing it, to keep evolving, to keep adapting. It's an opportunity also to be passionate and open, to see new colors, to say, I have learned how to do this to this degree, now I'm gonna see how they do it to their degree. And coming out, learning. That's what these Dharma gates are, coming in to each moment as an opportunity to learn, to practice. Well, now we come to the fun one. The Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it, to take on the mantle of being a Buddha to be a Buddha, that can be terrifying. That can be impossible. That can be something that somebody else does. That's something that happened in ancient times or in the 1960s or to somebody else. It cannot happen to me. But here's a trick. I was fortunate. And when I first started practicing, I practiced at, uh, Zen Center of Los Angeles and our abiding abbot, Roshi Wendy Agyoku, uh, decided to update the vows, given to interpretation. And the one that stuck with me was the 
the interpretation of that fourth vow. The Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. She said, the Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. And that one got me. I immediately started thinking of it as the way that uh, the fitness buffs talk about gains. How those gains can be lost if the exercise or the practice isn't maintained. And then it became something more like, yeah, it's practicing, it's failing and trying, it's falling and getting up again. It's this unending process of practice, 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 practice. It's embodying, it's putting it in here and shining it out. That's what that final vow means. So what I personally ended up learning after repeating these vows for a very long time is that they kind of offer a roadmap toward practice, toward self-examination, and toward an in, a richer inner life. To begin with, immediately all beings are numberless. I vow to save them. I am part of a Sangha. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma, teachings. Dharma gates are vast and boundless. I vow to enter them. Teachers and practice right there. And the fourth one just happens. As enlightenment happens through meditation and practice. So, in the end, when you think about the four vows and bodhisattva practice, you can think of Jizo. Jizo is the bodhisattva archetype, the keeper of the vow, protector of travelers and small children. And when you think of them in this context, you can think of them as the one who helps keeps the promise and keep on the path those that are just traveling and those that are, have been traveling, the beginners and everyone else. And that's the thing about uh, practicing these vows and becoming a bodhisattva, an exemplar, a person who works toward easing the suffering of others, or a person who has reached that final step of awakening, of transcending, but stays and gets everybody in before they enter. There's a bit of nobility and a bit of impossibility in that, but ultimately it's all doable. Anyway, I hope that I haven't confused anybody more than normal. And I just wanna leave with, uh, end this with like a, just a little, like a little bit of a closing statement. Um, in our tradition, there is the story of the sixth ancestor who, again, I love this story. The sixth ancestor had inherited the mantle from the fifth ancestor when he had approached the temple to begin his practice. He was a, uh, an illiterate farmer. And he just took to it like a fish to water. And when the time came to pass the robe on, the fifth ancestor said, 
whomever can write the best explanation of Dharma practice on this wall shall inherit the robe, bowl, the robe, bowl, and bell. I'm probably misremembering it. This is why you need to write things down. And the head student had written something where, you know, the dust lands on the stand and the mirror diligently we must polish. The sixth ancestor asking a friend to help him with this, had the friend write, there is no stand, there is no mirror, there's no place for the dust to land. Now, originally when I thought this, when I heard this, I thought, oh, there is no stand or mirror. There is nothing, just emptiness and space. But now I kind of think of it as if you're always practicing, if you're always diligently there at the mirror and the stand wiping, cleaning and polishing, then there is no mirror and there is no stand and there's no place for anything to land. Or at least again, that's my experience from at least 10 years of uh, service jobs. So I'd like to thank everybody for this wonderful opportunity. And um, I'll, I'll hand it back to me. Thank you.